Hello, welcome to the January 10th episode of This Day in Wikipedia. My name is Sean. Thank you once again for tuning in and listening. Sorry that this episode came on the tail end of January 10th, but uh, it was a little tough for me to get through it today, but I still released it on the 10th, and that's what's important, darn it. As always, I just wanted to start by wishing a happy holiday to our listeners in the Bahamas. Happy Majority Rule Day. So I actually was like pretty shocked at how hard it was to decide who I was going to talk about today. Uh, originally, I had one person, and then when I started looking, it became, I was just like, I don't know if I have enough there. And so that led me to reading like <laughs> 30 articles before I found the person I decided on. So born on January 10th. 1873, George Orton was a Canadian Olympic athlete. Now, most Olympic athlete stories don't start like George's, but at the age of three, he fell out of a tree, suffered a blood clot in his brain, was paralyzed, and his right arm was severely damaged to the point where it he never really regained the use of it. Around age 10, he started to regain motion, and by the time he was 12, he was able to start walking again. Over the course of the next 20 years, he became a renowned runner in Canada, and he studied at the University of Toronto. While at the University of Toronto, he set a record, and so this was in 1892, so he was basically 19 he set a record for the mile race at the University of Toronto of 421.08, and that record lasted for 42 years. After graduating from the University of Toronto, he was offered a scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania, where he went to complete his master's and his doctorate. While he was in the U.S., he won 17 national titles, seven in Canada, and one in Britain. He won 131 major races, 33 of which were national and international championships, and in 1900 went to the Olympics in Paris. He won a bronze in the 400-meter hurdles. In the 2,500-meter steeplechase event, he set a new world record of 7 minutes, 34.04, and won the gold medal, which he did all of this with a stomach bug. And then he placed fifth in the 4,000-meter steeplechase. And at that particular set of Olympics, George was the only non-American to win a track at that event. One of the little interesting tidbits that was in his article was that prior to the 1908 Olympics, the athlete's nationality wasn't important. Like, they were just there representing themselves. That changed at the 1908 Olympics when they actually started keeping tallies for countries on what medals they won. So they retroactively went back and gave George's medals to the United States, even though he technically was Canadian. And it took over 70 years for that mistake to be noticed and for George's medals to be awarded correctly to Canada. George Orton was also the first athlete with a disability to win an Olympic gold medal. 
He is also known as the father of Philadelphia hockey. While a student at University of Penn, he helped bring a hockey team to the city, and he was the first captain of that team. As a result, the popularity of hockey exploded in Philadelphia. In 1913, he founded Camp Iroquois, which was the first athletic overnight camp for young women. He then followed that up by publishing a training manual for distance runners called Distance and Cross-Country Running. And then he also wrote a book about the history of University of Pennsylvania athletics. He died in 1958 at the age of 85. When I read George's story, I just found it so compelling with the fact that he suffered such hardships as a small child, you know, couldn't really walk until he was 12, and then became an Olympic athlete at running. I mean, it just really, it's really awe-inspiring and just really shows that, you know, put your mind to something, you can really do whatever you want. As far as deaths go, this person, I was actually going to do this person's birth because it was only two days ago. Um, but I wanted to do David Bowie. Um, so there was some other people that were born on the 8th that I felt were interesting too. And I knew that Bowie's death was coming up. So I decided to save Bowie for today. I don't know what you can really say about David Bowie. I mean, he is probably one of the most successful musicians of all time. You know, he basically released his first album in 1967 and his last album in 2016. I mean, that's a 50-year career of being a fairly prolific artist. I mean, there's very few musicians that can even try to match something like that. It's really incredible. David Bowie was born in 1947 in Brixton, South London. From an early age, he had an interest in music, and he went on to study art and music. He joined his first band at age 15, which was called The Conrads, but he was frustrated with his bandmates' lack of ambition, and he left and joined the King Bees. I find it funny that a 15-year-old was concerned about the ambition of other 15-year-olds, but I mean, I guess that's what separates us normal people from David Bowie. Shortly after joining the King Bees, uh, Bowie signed with his first manager, Leslie Kahn. I read an interesting story that uh, Bowie had written a letter to, I believe it was the Beatles manager, and was like, I want you to do for me what you did for the Beatles. And the guy was like, eh, I'm going to pass for now, but like, I'm going to pass your information on to my friend Leslie. And so under Cohn's management, he spent the next few years bouncing between bands. He really was trying to get a foothold, but he just couldn't like get over that hump. Like all of the work that he released in this early time was considered good, but not great, which was actually a trend with a lot of his early releases. After he finished his contract with Khan, he then signed with Ralph Horton. And it was really Horton's suggestion that Bowie go solo that he finally got over, you know, the urge to play in a band and decided to go solo. He released his first album, which was just called David Bowie in 1967, but it really didn't do much and was a little bit of a failure. With the failure of his first solo album, Bowie kind of went dark for a while. And then in 
1969, he released his second album, which was also confusingly called David Bowie. In 1970, he released the album The Man Who Sold the World, which had a heavier rock sound than his previous albums. And this was kind of the first time he started to get a little bit of popularity. During the tour for The Man Who Sold the World, Bowie began to experiment with his Ziggy Stardust character. In 1971, he released his fourth album, Hunky Dory, which again was another good but not great album. In 1972, though, was when Bowie debuted his Ziggy Stardust character. It took off. The album received substantial airplay. One of the interesting things about Bowie during this time was that he pretty much was immersed completely in the Ziggy Stardust character. In July of 73, he gave a press conference where he retired the Ziggy Stardust character, and then later in the year, he released the movie Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. One of the interesting byproducts of Ziggy Stardust's success was that his <laughs> his back catalog of music also became highly sought after. Uh, this led to both The Man Who Sold the World and David Bowie II getting re-released in 1972. He released two albums later in 1973 as well, The Laughing Gnome and Pinups. And with the success of those albums, it certified Bowie as the best-selling act of 1973. And at one point in time, he had six albums on the UK chart. He also went on to have a fairly successful film career as well, and he is probably most known for his 1986 movie Labyrinth, where he played Jareth the Goblin King. By the time of his death, Bowie had been nominated for 113 awards, and he won 49 of them. He won 6 Grammys, 4 MTV Video Awards, and 11 NME Awards. In the US, he has 5 Platinum Records and 9 Gold Certified Records. His final album, Black Star, was released two days before his death and on Bowie's 69th birthday. It went number one on almost every record chart around the world, a testament to his continued popularity. Prior to his death, I was not really a huge David Bowie fan. Like, I kind of knew who he was. I had seen Labyrinth. I had heard some of his songs, but I had no idea that the guy had such a prolific career. And after he passed away, I was just kind of looking at through all the music that he did, and there are songs that I had no idea that he had been a part of, like Under Pressure. He did a, a Christmas duet with like Bob Hope or something like that. I mean, it was just crazy, like the amount of people that he worked with. Um, he was a very prolific singer and one of a kind and will not ever really easily be replaced. On this day, January 10th in 1946, the United States Army Signal Corps successfully conducted Project Diana. Project Diana was an attempt by the U.S. Army to bounce radar signals off the moon and receive the reflected signals back on Earth. The genesis of this project started after World War II with the desire to track missiles that could enter into the ionosphere. And this became a priority to the Pentagon. A team of engineers was assembled to see if it was possible to project a radar signal out of the ionosphere, bounce it off the moon, and then receive it. The Project Diana radar antenna was constructed at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. 
The number of calculations involved in each attempt was incredible. They had to take into consideration the rotation of the Earth, the rotation of the Moon, disturbances in the atmosphere, etc. Each day, they only had roughly a 40-minute window to test all of their experiments because of the way the antenna was positioned. On January 10th, 1946, the Army was finally successful. Project Diana was hugely important for the U.S. space program, as it was now proven that radio waves could penetrate the atmosphere, and it opened up the possibility for communication with satellites and astronauts. The research from Project Diana was also used during the Cold War to intercept and spy on Russian radio transmissions. Moonbounce communication technology had a short life. It's really funny. Uh, they spent so much time and effort perfecting Moonbounce and making it a real thing. And then <laughs> less than 10 years later, it was gone and communication satellites had taken over everything. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. I'm sorry this podcast was so late coming out. I look forward to talking to you all again tomorrow. Monday, January 11th. Have a great day.